0: Hello and welcome to the popular show—a popular show about culture and politics—with David Slavik, Izzy Dan, Alfie Bound, and me, James Smith. Thanks to our supporters on Patreon, and thanks to Margaret Kimberley, our interview subject on this show.
1: Welcome everyone. Welcome people on YouTube. Welcome who's in the Zoom. uh, To what is the the first uh, really? the first uh, episode of the popular show. Uh, Thanks so much to those who have been with us through our time as Everyday Analysis. And welcome to this new format um, of the popular show, uh, which will combine politics, populism, popular culture, and take place every Wednesday um, at uh, 8.30 UK time. Uh, I think it's 3.30 EST. um, uh, 12.30 central time. No, that's not right, is it? 2.30 Central Time and 12.30 Pacific Time, I think that's right. Uh, And uh, we'll be doing this uh, uh, myself, Alfie. Hello, nice to meet you, those of you who are are new. Uh, James Smith. Hello, James, how are you?
2: Hello, I'm all right. Good to see you, Alfie. Uh,
1: David, how are you?
2: It's lovely to be here in Newfoundland and Canada.
1: Yeah, different time zone entirely. One I didn't even list on <laughs> yeah. the... Uh, on the <laughs> I didn't think it was even worth uh, trying to scoop up New And It isn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and Izzy, how how are you?
3: Hello, not bad, thank you. Wonderful to be here.
1: Good, so this will be our kind of uh, core team as we go through the next, however long we do this for. Uh, and uh, yeah, uh, James and I are um, at Royal Holloway, University of London. Uh, most of you know us so we don't need to go, go into that. Uh, Izzy works in um, tech communications. Uh, David was formerly producer of the Michael Brooks Show. You're now producing HMOD On Demand. Do you want to plug that as well, David? Is that, so, when's, uh... when's that back?
2: Actually, that's going to be back this week. Uh, it's Heidi Matthews on demand. My my uh, my wife and and much 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 better half. Uh, professor Heidi Matthews of uh, York University's Osgoode College of Law um, is. We have some of the the best minds in law coming on. We have Noah Feldman, if you may know from the Senate hearings on the impeachment of the president. Uh, we have um, Sam Moyn, uh, fa- famous uh, leftist political professor. We who we all lo- know and love. Um, we have. Um, we have any number of professors coming on uh, and, and as well as academics uh thinkers of all stripes as well as activists we also have an episode with alfie bound who uh, you may know uh who we, we i felt was a it was a great episode you might want to look at that at soundcloud.com slash hmod yeah it
1: was a fun episode it feels like a different life away i did that from hong kong i, I think um, um but uh yeah, uh so, so this will be the popular show and it will be fun and uh, we will eventually be popular. Uh, so let's to our
0: patrons, <laughs> right? our patrons who are there on the ground floor. Uh we're very uh, grateful to you guys. And are gonna start we're gonna start using that Patreon money such as it is to make the podcast sound a bit better. So hopefully this is yeah. gonna be better value to subscribe to. Uh, to listen to if you can't make it on the Wednesday night.
1: So follow us on YouTube and check out the Patreon. Uh, loads of which is is free uh, if you don't want to subscribe, um, uh, and much of which is not free. So you should subscribe um, and and uh, check out the new podcast as it comes out. All right, guys. Uh, let let's start with uh, seeing um, what's been going on this week. Really, um, James, what have you been? Uh, what have you been thinking about since we last uh, we were last on here a week ago?
0: Um, well, uh, we've seen the um, the warning signs of the return of Jordan Peterson. Uh, I think this is this is going to be kind of interesting. I, I saw that uh, uh, Angie speaks from uh, Low Society podcast referred to um, the uh, the Chud Dunking industrial complex that's already going to be kind of rising again, ready. To meet this second volume of uh, of Twelve Rules for Life, um, it does seem like kind of a strange sort of retro moment already, kind of back to 2017 um, when uh, Peterson well first came to to my attention. Um, I don't know. What what do you think about that? Are we going to get him on?
2: JP. So- <laughs> So I, I think it's possible to get him on. He's a he's a neighbor when I'm living in Toronto. Uh I'm I'm friends with his uh, former uh grad student. Um and yet, additionally, is there some question about whether he's alive at all? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's been, uh, he's been in um, um, uh treatment in Russia, of all places. I, uh, you know, I imagine going from Canada, where we have excellent health care, to uh, Russia for, for your health care coverage. But, you know, everybody's got their, their process. Uh, but uh, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with him, because for the last several year, last year or so, there's been some question about whether he's alive at all. It's a, it's a, it's a real John is dead sort of situation. <laughs> where um people are speculating that his daughter has killed him mm-hmm. in Russia and is now taking over his empire and ghostwritten this I mean, book. I mean,
1: this is totally, totally bizarre. I mean, I think I think we should in fact uh, spend some time talking about Jordan Peterson instead of uh, rounding up the week's topics before we welcome on uh, Margaret Kimberly, um, formerly editor of Black Agenda Reports and a very important uh, writer in, in uh, Black Activist New York and America more broadly in about twenty minutes. But personally Peterson would be a quite a good uh, a good thing to, to cover for First of all, I mean, I I found that basically what you're just recounting there, David, pretty unbelievable, like not so much because the conspiracy theories are are unbelievable themselves and more because like. Peterson, like, um, or, like, how did he get such mythology that people would even bother to make up conspiracy theories about him? I think that's maybe the question to start with.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I'm going to defer to JA on this because I, I actually think it's really interesting. I, I think, um, and he's he's written sort of extensively on the Peterson phenomenon. Uh, one of the things I just think is that, um, I is he's the the only sort of uh, philosopher of our day that I will see the book on my friends who drive pickup trucks in rural pennsylvania's houses and you, and they'll say this book really helped me and i can't argue with that so there's something there that is helpful but there's also something there that is that is very limiting and keeps people sort of in their place in a in and in, in, in the realm of imagination i think it's a prison of your own mind situation and i and i can understand why you would turn to benzos if if that's your mentality
0: yeah it, it i mean it was a very kind of original project 12 rules for life a combination of um self-help uh of of the the kind that you know dominates the uh uh the kind of sale shelves of 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 every waterstones of every bookstore chain but kind of containing in it like this very idiosyncratic kind of weird personal mythology uh that peterson had been kind of cooking up in the background of his pretty you know, uh, uh, standard and and, uh, and not unusual academic career um, as a uh, as a, 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 an evolutionary uh, psychologist. Um, and uh, I, I think when it came uh, and it sort of mixed with that mythology, with that self-help book um, genre, um, what a lot of us on the left took to be dog whistles to um, a lot of ideas that we associated at the time with the alt-rights. There was um, kind of references to the sort of incel mythology of, of how um, only the kind of most alpha males uh, uh, get anywhere with women. Um, there was this kind of classic uh, Cold War anti-communism stuff in there. So I, I think when that book came out, it was it was such an unusual project and it was so such a strange, strange, boring book, actually, to have um, like got this huge international success. I think there was a sort of way which everyone on the left felt the need to have their say on it. And everyone on the left felt the need to kind of like stamp on it. In a way, it's it's a, a kind of testimony to how far to the right a lot of cultural discourse has gone in certain areas anyway, that actually that like reaction almost seems a little bit quaint now. Um,
2: Yeah. I I have a question about that because I've actually read the book, like, I mean, not like extensively just because I had to see what was going on. Um, I had the opportunity to go to the Zizek Peterson debate, uh, uh, Slavoj Zizek, a friend of the show, um, but, uh, and had the opportunity to kind of see where he got dismantled, you know, largely because he's not of the same caliber. But the question is, is like, is he Peterson popular because he has this tabula rasa sort of effect, you know. People can kind of put on him what what they want to see in him, and uh, I think that works for the left and the right. Yeah, um, yeah. The the um,
0: at Penguin, it was reported there was a sort of town hall, and staff were you know really upset at the idea that Penguin was publishing this sequel. Uh, to the first text. I mean, I, I can't imagine what could be in the book that would be more objectionable than than what was in the the first attempt, which you know if you if you, if you read it and if you wanted to uh, uh, pay attention to it it it, it was uh, it, it had plenty of uh, deeply right wing ideas, deeply reactionary ideas. Um, the, it's kind of interesting that it's this time around that there has been this well reported anyway reaction within, uh, Penguin Books staff actually, you know, crying at the prospect of Peterson being published.
1: So, 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 so what's the what's this embarrassing Penguin story that's happened? I think we should re- recount that really. So, so, what's this? What's the what's the the, the the employees are crying because Penguin followed through on the publication of Jordan Peterson's book,
0: second book. Yeah, I, I guess yeah, there, yeah, the there wasn't book. any. Um, there, there wasn't any controversy at. Penguin, as far as I know, the first time round. but with the announcement of this second book, it's kind of interesting to see, I don't know if there's a sort of shift in the cultural attitudes of the standard kind of low level employee to publisher um, in the succeeding three or four years since the first book came out.
2: Now, the question yeah. is that if so, essentially they had the meeting, uh, there was people breaking out and they're saying that he was actually violently threatening their way of life. That was some of the quotes that were in, involved. Um, it, that this this book was actually a challenge to their existence. That was some of the other quotes that were mm-hmm. existed. Um, and and I, I have no doubt that people felt that way. Um, and that I, I'm not talking about the validity of that, but I, I thought what I was interesting is that for his audience, there is no better advertisement mm-hmm. than people feeling so threatened by the ideas that they would cry. Mm. Yeah. But I, I, think I,
1: that's, what I mean. that's why I was asking about the crying. I mean, it, it's you know, I mean, for you know, I mean, we we know about. Um, a concept I mean maybe people don't know a concept like called salt mining or griefing which is basically a concept that comes from the kind of right-wing gamer communities that Jordan Peterson's basically his his market audience is really and, and salt mining means when um, you know uh, a gamer as part of a Chan board or a, an image board of some kind will go into a multiplayer gaming space and make people cry and take screenshots of those tears or evidence of thereof and then post them to the image boards and get you know likes and approval from that community for that. And this is this is not far away from the demographic of Jordan Peterson's hardcore fans. Obviously his average audience is, is more like the Crouch End where I live, uh, sort of type of middle-aged man. But but his hardcore sort of supporter group is this type of sort of, um, you know, right right wing, salt mining and griefing is another word for it, uh, causing grief and screenshotting it and sharing it and getting points in another community. So, so this Penguin story seems to be like this kind of bizarre, like public version like uh, of this kind of right wing tactic. And uh, yeah, as you say, David, nothing could be more uh, pleasurable to Peterson's core base than seeing uh, Penguin employees, you know, who clearly are that, that And somehow an indicator of like successful bourgeois, uh, but but lower level successful bourgeois employees la- crying at this thing—it's it's, yeah. it's kudos for them, and, yeah. and that's precisely I the mean, problem. There.
2: There's nothing like PMC tears, you know, and I think yeah. that that's what people want. And I think that's the interesting thing is that if uh, how could you not want to read a book that is so challenging that it made the publisher cry? I mean, that's <laughs> that's like the most. I mean, the thing is most things will either make you angry or they'll make you annoyed or they'll make you indifferent. But to bring you to tears, that's actually an endorsement rather than that. And I, I think that, that the uh, sort of um, commodification of the idea of of grief is really um, working its, its, its last bad move here because I think this book's going to be a bestseller. Yeah,
0: yeah. No. in some ways uh, Penguin needed a story like this, so it wouldn't it wouldn't actually be totally surprising if it was fake, uh, because, I mean, what has happened to Peterson in the interim, he has, uh, as you were describing, become, you know, addicted to painkillers, been in a coma, been taken to Russia by his daughter to get, you know, alternative uh, uh, surgeries that they won't do in the States. Um, uh, uh, yeah, he, he's been in a sort of meltdown. I mean, he's been, you know, publicly humiliated by by Zizek, and really, you know, as I was seeing sort of threads of um, denouncements of of Peterson going around on social media, like clips of him uh, humiliating himself or saying obnoxious things, it, it was almost with a sort of sense of like warm nostalgia to this kind of quite comical, ridiculous figure. Um, that that sort of intensity with which um, Peterson's supporters were defending him or turning to him for life advice on absolutely every problem under the sun. Um, That is slightly hard to imagine after this whole kind of uh, benzo coma Zizek uh, uh, adventure that Peterson's been on. Um, And well, so too is the, you know, what I referred to before of that, that kind of Left anxiety of him, which you know, I I was uh, I was guilty of myself really, and, and sort of did did find kind of a startling figure when he uh, when he first came on the scene. Yeah, yeah
1: I, I think. think, I that, think I mean, no, no, I'll i was, go ahead. You know, after. I, all right, yeah, no, I was gonna ask James to, to say a bit more, but like I think um you know this is really I mean it's interesting you mentioned the Zizek thing, which obviously, you know, you saw those critiques of Zizek saying he shouldn't have even that there was a, it was a strange, it seems like the left has changed in its relationship to Peterson here. So at the time I remember people saying, Oh, Slavoj shouldn't have even done it, you know, because it sort of gained like legitimized, you know, the, the rhetoric of Peterson or whatever in a different sphere. Uh and then I think I think most people put those complaints to bed when it actually happened and he was totally destroyed. Um, you know, and, and obviously it was It was so funny because you know the pizza fans, the YouTube pizza community, loves post those videos saying like pizza destroys feminists or pizza destroys, and then like pizza was the the destroyed, you know, which was hilarious in some way. But but I guess uh, you know this this opens out to another question of like you know. uh, how should the left deal with Peterson this time? Because clearly erupted, um, you know, the last time, uh, you know, Zizek took a different tactic to the tactic that most of the left kind of um, wanted to take with Jordan Peterson. Uh, Zizek took it maybe more seriously, as you said you did, uh, than, than others. But but now, would you do the same again? I mean, or, or what? Do you think the left should respond to this kind of reemergence of this figure in a different way?
0: Yeah, I think that, first of all, it's important to not at all endorse um the reaction of the of the penguin employees i mean okay people have got a right to to make their feelings known about the actions of their workplace um penguin has published far worse people than, than Jordan Peterson people with far more blood on their hands uh frankly than, than uh, this slightly odd uh, youtube lifestyle coach uh, so that's worth bearing in mind um I think that uh, the, the left should be very wary indeed of um, of kind of emotional appeals uh, against publication. I, I guess when I hear that um, employees at Penguin are are, in, are deploying this kind of um, trauma politics, as it were, this book is, is a threat to, to my life. I mean, I, I can understand the, the feeling of not liking Jordan Peterson, certainly, but um, the, the, uh, this kind of traumification, if you like, of, of public life, I think is a very dangerous thing. I mean, just imagine a situation where in a few years' time, Jeremy Corbyn is approached by Penguin to write his autobiography, um, if the um, if the precedent has been established that employees saying that this person is a danger to my existence, etc et etc, cetera, et cetera, uh, and and therefore the book shouldn't be published, well, you know what have we just spent the last few years on the left in britain experiencing being told that our political project is a a threat to the existence of a, of 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 a of a minority and you know that's not an exaggeration that was literally what was said about us so i, I think that um first off there needs to be um a lot more of the sort of Zizekian like engagement with you know, the the perfectly banal stuff in Peterson that that one can agree with, there needs to be a a kind of um, an arch and satirical attitude towards this deeply comic figure, this person who's proven himself to be not really up to the the, the job of philosopher king that's been kind of given to him, uh, and instead a kind of um, something more irreverent, because I, I think you know this ties in with with what uh, Glenn Greenwald was was talking to us about last week. I, I think as soon as the left gets into bed with a kind of argument for censorship on the basis of um, feeling and 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 appeals to emotion and appeals to trauma, then we it should be perfectly obvious that we're endorsing a framing that's going to be used against us.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's. I think that's it. I mean, and I think that yeah, yeah, I, I think the the key the key point here is probably this point about the emotional response to to Peterson. And um, you know, I mean it occurs to me that uh, yeah i mean it's also he's also quite soft he's quite on the soft you know <laughs> this is the thing uh, peterson is quite soft he's not he's not the the fearful far right who's who's going to take away your um, your identity and, and destroy your culture he's he's a very soft edge and it's almost it's quite striking that like we we're, we're so in some ways we we have no uh people on the lefts have struggled to often or, or on the liberal left struggle to criticize liberalism and Peterson is actually part of liberalism uh, not part of this uh, dangerous far right that's going to destroy your mind he's much more a symptom of popular science and the kind of cultures of, of liberalism and liberal academic publishing and this pop pop science stuff he, he's yeah. he, anything he should be used as a way for us to say actually our enemy is not the far right as as, as only but also this kind of liberal Centrist rhetoric, which is dominant. So it's, yeah. it's actually and, bizarre and that self-help people culture find themselves. So emotionally. Yeah. 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 self, yeah, exactly. I mean,
2: I mean, you know, just, just, just like, um, you know, uh, you know, the white fragility project is, is, is dangerous in the way that it, it commodifies sort of, um, real issues. And we're, we're going to talk about that with our guests later. Um, you know, but we also have a situation where people are, are thinking every improvement that can happen in society happens through you. That, that's just as much a liberal project as it is a conservative project, and, and it's mm-hmm. the neoliberal project that we're seeing. And Peterson is just as bad as, you know, um, Marianne Williamson and her, you know, uh, Course in Miracles. Where, you know, I like Marianne Williamson's politics, but, you know, it's about personal improvement. Um, you know, structures in society as materialists, we must, like, actually improve them, and that's what really matters. And that, And that's the most dangerous thing about the Peterson project, not the right-wing part yeah yeah, yeah. It, he he
0: reveals the illiberalism at at the heart of liberalism really it, it's the it, it's not that uh, it, he kind of de, you know deconstructs if you want to put it in terms that he would himself abhor it deconstructs the, the separation between neoliberal orthodoxy and the far right actually these the, the, these things share more assumptions than they um than they depart from uh, uh, each other from uh, uh, on um, yeah i mean j- just thinking just this this week that that um that sort of response of of tier, of tier, pmc tears for the publication of peterson we've actually seen it uh, examples of it just in, in this week across the political spectrum I, I saw one uh conservative mp um attacking people who criticized macron this week, uh, uh, Macron, who's uh, uh, revealed uh, as a kind of response to uh, terrorist attacks in France following um, the, uh, the, the, the representation of, of Allah um, affair, Macron has revealed deeply illiberal policies uh, in terms of uh, um, restriction and monitoring of Muslims. Uh, criticisms of that I saw responded to by by one um, conservative over here as um I, he was saying we have to let france grieve you know France has been through this uh, dreadful trauma and uh, you 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 need to not blame the victim you need to uh, let them grieve as if public policy here is a kind of um therapy that that uh, that france is going through in in response to um, a trauma closer to home um the uh, the Home Secretary, the British Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has been found by a, a, a review, uh, an investigation, to have bullied civil servants. And um, workplace bullying is obviously a, a, a dreadful and widespread thing and, you know, one of the core left-wing issues, surely. But what we're being asked to feel um, an emotional response to with this case is that one of the most powerful people in the country, this top civil servant, the permanent uh, 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 secretary to the Treasury, um, we, we're being asked on the left to um, like feel towards this guy as if he's a school kid or um, you know, a, a waiting staff or, or somebody uh, in a call centre or whatever who's been bullied by their manager i think across the political spectrum we're seeing um a, a solicitation of us to think of our politics through the lens of trauma and through the lens of individual uh, healing and so on and uh this is just framing that's going to be used against the left against the the bully boys on on the left the bully bernie bros and so on so it's very dangerous indeed to start uh, endorsing that just because it happens to uh, support our politics
1: yeah no I th- I think this is also something for for the left in general to think about they like you know, we we tend to when when somebody's getting cancelled, um, we we jump on it straight away if if it's somebody we don't we want cancels, and there's you know this is a question you know you raising it in this context of Pretty Patel or or maybe these crying employees at Penguin about Jordan Peterson, it's it's a it's a question of whether you actually want to go down that route on the left, and if you do it if you do it when it suits you, you know what's going to happen when it doesn't, David.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, I think that we're going to see this over and over and over again. I think that uh, one of the things that we've seen is that the master's tools, the to, to quote, Audrey Lord, like the master's tools have been used. You can't use the master's tools against the master. And I think that what we're seeing is, you know, getting people to embrace some of the tools of cancel culture and these things that are actually HR sort of tools to get people fired. And we're seeing that get, getting used and in, in sort of uh recycled into left culture in a way that i think is actually pretty dangerous and that um you know by relying on those type of things we're going to allow it happen to us i yeah. mean we've seen seen it with jeremy corbyn we've, we've seen them try to do it to bernie sanders we're seeing them do it to people who are challenging um the type of appointees uh who may be warmongers in the in the biden administration you know and it's like it's great to have representation uh pieces in high places matter you know but i think it's a really also really important that people have the values that we have so uh i just want to uh just recognize that Margaret Kimber- kimberly is in the yep. chat right now and and i'm i'm a big fan and uh, very excited to have her on um I actually had to, uh, I mind a lot of my friends about questions for her, and I, I hope that she likes the questions that we came up with. But I just want to kick it to you, Alfie, and you can do the introduction.
1: Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, we should shelve the discussion of Jordan Peterson for another time, and uh, and also the discussion of The Crown, which we'll do later tonight. Uh, and, and welcome a massive welcome to Margaret Kimberley, um, who uh, you know is a is incredibly important. Uh, um, writer in many ways, an activist, uh, and uh, she's an editor at Black Agenda Report. uh, And actually, Margaret, we've... um We've we've met. Uh, I don't know. Are you, I doubt you, you remember, but I we we met in New York uh, when I came to the um, Left Forum uh, with uh, when Douglas Lane from Zero Books invited us to do a panel, and uh, uh, we had a nice walk together through uh, towards Harlem. I was staying in Harlem. Did, you grew up in Harlem, I think.
4: Oh we, yeah, I do live there. I do remember.
1: Yeah, we. we... <laughs> yeah, we, we we walk home together from the uh, New Left Forum uh, in yeah, 2017 or
0: something. This is not the face of a woman who remembers the. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: no, uh, anyway, and, and also uh, Margaret's um, author of this fantastic book, Presidential, uh, which goes through this history of um, US presidents from start to now, uh, all the way to Trump, uh, From yeah, and, and uh, we've got lots of questions and things to ask Margaret sure. about, and uh, massive thank you for joining us, um, Margaret, and uh, how are you, and where are you coming to us from? Are you in Harlem in, now?
4: I am. I'm uh, in my apartment in, uh, in Harlem, here in New York City. Um, a very strange uh, few days. Uh, tomorrow is our big Thanksgiving holiday, although it's kind of odd. People aren't going out. People used to travel. I mean, there's still a fair number of people traveling. So this uh, you know, virus that we thought would be over by now, still lingering. And uh, it looks like we're gonna go through a full year of dealing with COVID um, uh, be- because of our own uh, inadequacies as a system. Yeah. But um, but I, I don't have it, knock wood. And uh, so life is good. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> there's
0: inadequacies over here, of course, but we seem to have, uh, well, our leaders have elected to do Christmas anyway. Um...
4: It, it's the it, people can't make up their minds. It's, you know, on the one hand, you know how to do this. You know, first of all, let's talk about China, the country blamed for all of this. They've only had 5000 deaths. Mm-hmm. Um. There are other countries that have, uh, China has an infrastructure, I, I remember reading a couple of weeks ago, that there was a city where they had like 10 cases. So they tested everybody, a city of 9 million people, they tested everybody in a week. And when you have an infrastructure that is built to take care of human needs, you can do things like that. So these shutdowns, the shutting down, opening up, it can't work unless you have that kind of massive testing. Now we're being told these vaccines are the answer um i you know i'm a little worried frankly that they're being rushed through um but uh but we'll we'll see that's
1: yeah it's it's um mostly the same over here uh you know completely yeah mismanaged and uh, disastrous response uh, James and Izzy and I are coming from, to you from London and David from Newfoundland in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Presumably there's not much coronavirus over there, David. It's just nothing. There's, there's no one to carry it. I no, actually.
2: It's <laughs> been very interesting because it's. Uh, I actually had to apply for a special exemption to come here from Toronto. Um, they've created an internal border. Uh, we are involved in a constitutional case. Uh, my wife and I, my wife is a law professor at uh, Osgoode Hall University, and we actually challenged the, the, the law to get to come to Newfoundland. Um, it's been very interesting. It's, a, it's an interesting case of where COVID is not spreading, but it's a civil liberties issue. And uh, I think we're we're seeing that sort of balance between civil liberties and COVID spreading uh, all over Canada and all over uh, the U.S. And I'm a, I'm American uh, by citizenship, uh, but uh, we're seeing that sort of thing happen all over. And uh, I think it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens in the states under Joe Biden administration. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what Margaret thinks about that as well.
1: Yeah. Well, we want to talk to you, Margaret, about Biden and about. Um, about obama and about trump and about all the presidents you've written about but i'm gonna i'm gonna hand over to james to get things going with you i think
0: um yeah great uh yeah as uh, as alfie says we, we, we're really uh, delighted to have you here um oh, there was one like striking passage from um the book which maybe kind of serves as a as, as almost a sort of subtext to the entire thing at the end of your chapter on, on kennedy you say mm-hmm. that uh this is a book um which uh, is obviously about the the history of um, American presidents collusion in uh, in the most abject racism. But it's also a revisionist account of presidents who are remembered as kind of progressive heroes and anti-racist heroes, and indeed are kind of remembered warmly uh, among black Americans. And um, you you say uh, at at the end of your chapter on JFK, that um, this is part of a long and sad tradition of black people being pleased with the smallest political victories. And um, I I found that a very striking um, phrase. I, I wonder, like, what you could tell us about your sense of the shape of the black electorates what what's distinctive about it as a group and also what kinds of internal diversity uh, does it have what what uh, diversity of interests does it have and how's that played out either historically or or in kind of re you know the most recent elections be it the democrat democratic primary or indeed the general
4: well I think our um, um our politics are those of a a marginalized people. So uh, we um, behave as though we can't really play a role in electoral politics other than as a voter. So we come in at the end Um, And we have two parties, one of which is identified as the White People's Party. One is identified as the Black People's Party. And indeed, um, this year, as in every other year, most white Americans voted for Trump. Um, And uh, Black politics um, now consists mostly of just trying to keep Republicans out of office. So we are left on the sidelines until the very end, after the system, after all these uh, intrigues of, uh, you know, getting, making sure of the progressive, in this case, Bernie Sanders, that you get rid of him. And uh, then they choose Biden. And uh, they cough up this, this person at the end, and we're supposed to go out and vote for them. And we do. Now that's especially magnified with Trump. Um, the desire to be rid of him was strong. That's why it was amazing the turnout this year. I mean, it was huge. Record breaking. Even as the loser, Trump broke a record. Uh, no other Republican had gotten as many votes as he got in his losing effort. And that was because of the desire by many people of many races to be rid of um, of Donald Trump, who, nonetheless, we have to say, got 10 million more votes this time than he got mm-hmm. the last time. Um, so that's where we are. We have. Um, alleged representatives um, in Congress and so forth, Black people, uh, who are representing the interests of the Democratic Party establishment and not ours. So we have these elections where the things we need are not just not raised. And we are supposed, if anybody asks a question or says we should make a demand, we've all been convinced that doing that will cause the Democrat to lose. And so we have to silence ourselves we have to limit ourselves and the only thing we can do is turn out on election day um, despite the uh, diversity of, of black life when it comes to politics you know there are people who like to say we're not a monolith well actually we are and it's like 85 to ninety percent of us will vote for the Democrat regardless of where we live how much we we make our education level. We are still um, overwhelmingly uh, voters for the Democratic Party, but uh, once again, we're we're um, trapped in this uh, political duopoly in a country where uh, only two parties um, are uh, are able to run um, uh, to run campaigns and and really have a good chance of winning. And we have to, we're forced into this choice. Now I have stepped out of it. I'm a registered member of the Green Party. I think we have to, we have to get away from this. We're the losers. We always lose. Even when we win, we lose. So we see, for example, Biden is in, he's starting to announce um, his cabinet uh, choices. I know in Uh, Your countries in Britain and Canada, you have a shadow cabinet, so you know who the people will be, Um, but that's not how things work here. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing people um, who take money from, there's a black former congressman, now he resigned his seat, Richmond is his name, from Louisiana. He takes a lot of money from fossil fuel um, companies. Uh, He's a huge (laughs) from his campaign funds, but he's in charge of uh, climate or something. Somebody from DuPont, from a chemical country company, and on the transition team for the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. So we will see the worst things about Trump, I think, Uh, will disappear. We'll have better judicial nominees, you know, that sort of thing. But the system isn't going to change much. Actually, that's what Biden said. He told a group of um, rich funders, he said, nothing will fundamentally change. So here we are supposed to celebrate, and people really did celebrate the day that uh, Biden was declared uh, the winner in, I think it was Pennsylvania, a few days after election day. And it was official that he had enough electoral college votes. People lost it. Here in New York, across the country, people literally celebrated in the streets because Trump was gone. Mm. Um, which uh, was interesting to witness, but this should not. This is not the time to let down our guard. It's not the time to uh, take a backseat. It's the time to step forward and make demands.
1: Yeah. No. I. I um. I, yeah. I. I was. I want to come in because I. I was going to ask you something about the Obama chapter in your book. Um. And it mm. relates really to what you're saying here. Really. I mean, you. 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 You sort of. Um. Gave attention to. Um the obama uh statements there is no white america there is no black america right and how this kind of idealistic uh particular statement kind of makes out that there's a uh an idea of unity or people are just people and there's no actual uh there's no actual i mean it almost implies there's no actual fundamental prejudice and difference between the experience of white and black people we're all people it's kind of humanism yeah, yeah. and it's actually kind of similar to biden's kind of use of the phrase unity and and how this kind of um you know one america thing comes out and and then so you're you know and i think one of the most interesting things uh you know, about your positions is that you know you're obviously very critical of Obama as and and of this kind of um, uh, the way in which um, yeah, the the achievement was hollow, I think, is what you, how you describe it. The Obama yeah, achievement yeah. was hollow. and it and it just it does have this feeling now that um, it's being repeated in Biden. And as you just finished by speaking about how how people are feeling so great, uh, it's just going to be hollow again, and 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 you know, is that is that what you think, and what do you think of, of that I,
4: I think so. It's um, Our expectations are so low, you know, and Americans are always, we're always told that the system we have is the best one you can possibly have, and you don't have any other choice. This is it. This is the best thing. Uh, so that means whatever we're offered up by these people, we're supposed to accept. So in the case of Obama, we were supposed to just be happy that there was a black president. Um, and I understand, you know, those feelings, I get that. And also a lot of opposition to him was racist. Um, but, uh, but all we got out of that was this feeling of pride seeing him in the White House. That was it. Um, there was, our lives didn't change. Nothing improved, uh, on behalf of the American people. They made a big deal about the Obamacare, uh, health plan, which basically gave everybody the right to pay for insurance, to pay too much for insurance, which still didn't cover you if you really got sick. Um, and that was it. So uh, so yes, indeed, it was uh, very hollow. And I, I think Biden will be as well. We, we're not going to have crazy people uh, in these jobs. You're not going to have a, you know, crazy orange-faced man tweeting. No, you're not going to have those things. He's not going to, he's already signaled the so-called Muslim ban where uh, people from mostly Muslim nations were not allowed to enter the United States. He'll get rid of things like that. The dreamers, the uh, young people who are undocumented, who were brought here as kids, who will be allowed to stay. Uh, and those are good things. I'm glad that those things are um, are going to happen, but we're also going to have more austerity. And at, at this moment where we, because of COVID, because of it's really destroyed the economy, there are millions of people out of work, businesses that have failed. There needs to be an unprecedented FDR-like governmental program to bail out the people, to bail out businesses, everything from the airlines to your local restaurant, they've been, the ones that are still around, have been uh, devastated. And that is what we need. We need the opposite of what we've been told um, we're going to get, more austerity. Uh, just be quiet. Don't say anything. This is, you know, do you want Trump? And Trump, by the way, is going to be the poster child for the Democrats for years to come. I am yeah. convinced any complaint, any question will be met with, well, would you rather have Trump? Um, so they're already doing it. It's already begun. So, yeah. um, uh, it would be nice to have a president who really made a difference in the lives of, uh, of people during the last debate with Trump, Biden said he would raise the minimum wage, which is atrocious, atrociously low. Uh, I hope he meant it, but um, it's that kind of thing that will improve life for um, for Black people, for everybody in the country. But um, the way the system is he- is set up, it's set up not to give us those things that we need and we're told that everything we want and need is unrealistic. We can't have Medicare for all, which they have. Every, every country that the US compares itself to has some kind of public health care system. But we're told we can't possibly have it, we can't think about it, we can't ask about it. And uh, as long as those things are true, um, we will remain stuck in this, um, uh, yeah. in this duopoly system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I, totally agree, and have a lot. So, D- David, do you want to, do you want to come in here, and and I'll come back.
2: I think it's it's interesting as, as an American. I think, I, you know, it's it's when when I'm in Canada, I have a different perception perception of the American system than I do when I'm in the states. Um, my question is is how do we address some of the wokeification of the sort of Denial of criticism of people like Samantha Power, or you know, and and things like that, where we can't actually like you can't talk about a woman of color like that. You can't, you know, Anthony Blinken. I think (laughs) are you only criticizing Anthony Blinken because he's Jewish? You know, I. You. It's funny. I actually shared an. I had an office in D.C. Anthony Blinken's condo was above me. I did not know Anthony Blinken was Jewish. I just, I just knew he lived upstairs. You know, I and I think that this sort of like. use of standpoint epistemology to like get rid of criticism how do we address that because i think it's really important that people are in places we need to have diversify our our government we need to make sure that we're making these people you know making america look its leadership look like the the people but also how do we make sure that we're also saying hey that's okay but it's what you know it's the content of their character
4: yeah, well, it's what, what are their policies? What are we going to get from any of these people? This idea that, you know, if you have a woman who's uh, bombing countries or a woman who's torturing people or um, uh, Black, we've, we've seen this before. You know, Colin Powell was the liar, mass murderer in chief for uh, Iraq. So we had a Black person who made it, quote unquote. So instead of just white people being maniacs around the world, then, you know, Black people have their shot. Hillary Clinton uh, destroying Libya, she and Samantha Power and Susan Rice, they all, you know, were as bloodthirsty as the men. I, I don't see that as being an advance for anyone. The issue is the policy. And I think that's where we have to um, uh, keep our emphasis on what it is they do. What, first of all, what do we want? This business of, um, you know, treating uh, politics like it's some kind of a religion has to end. What do we want? What do we want them to do when, you know, when you have change in this country, it's because the people have demanded it because of mass action. We have Richard Nixon, a Republican, is the one who established the Environmental Protection Agency, but that's because millions of people were in motion about, uh, about pollution, about the environment. Uh, We talk about the civil rights movement, but nobody wants to talk about what people did. They made persistent demands. They were persistent. They were consistent. They didn't care if politicians liked what they said. They didn't care if they made demands knowing politicians did not want to meet them. So um, that is where we need to be so we don't have these awful, you know, somebody who looks like me, but they're you know, destroying life here and around the world. It has to be the critique has to be directed at the system, and we have to be clear about what we need.
0: There has been something of that um, kind of repoliticization in in the past few years, actually, especially in the Trump years. Often, this has taken very uh, unpredictable and sometimes inarticulate forms, but it, it has been there. Um, I was thinking of, of what you said earlier about the fact that. Um, uh it the the black vote is is assumed uh to kind of be the property of the democrats whatever candidate they put up uh because black people want to keep republicans out and that's a sort of uh, leitmotif of 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 your book as well as particularly in the in the kind of uh, post-war its coverage of the post-war era um that that problem that fact that um you know quality of life and um, living standards of black people has been consistently going down as it has for everybody mm-hmm. under neoliberalism but it 's striking to see how much it went down by under under the Obama presidency. The fact that um, the candidates that are being offered to um, black people are patently kind of inadequate to their demands and needs that, that is something that um, both the radical left and the radical right have been very conscious of um the the trump campaign um actually both trump campaigns did a great deal of outreach to ethnic minorities in general and uh to black people in particular um and i'm very curious about your view of the the fact that that does appear to have worked this time round. And, and trump has made uh, has made you know they 're still comparatively small but they're they 're very striking on his own terms, given uh the association of his presidency with unprecedented racism on the left meanwhile um, after the first Bernie Sanders campaign after the two thousand sixteen campaign um, one of the kind of consistent criticisms of Bernie was that uh, his his um campaign and his offer didn't reach out enough to mm-hmm. black voters. And quite, quite a lot of his uh, decision-making about the appointments he made to his team was motivated by kind of getting a, more of a kind of hearing among the the black uh, primary uh, uh, selectors. Um, and that didn't really work. So I, I wondered what your uh, sort of like attempts on the right and the left to kind of break that current deadlock of... Uh, black voters kind of feeling like they, they're automatically going to vote for centrist Dems. Um, why it seemed to have worked, if if that's true on the right, and why it didn't work with Bernie?
4: Well, I think um, because we're told we we don't have any options except to be supporters of Republicans or Democrats, there's this contrarian... Um, cohort who say the Democrats take us for vantage, advantage of us, we should look at the Republicans. I think that's what that amounts to. Um, instead of saying we can go to the left of the Democrats, instead of saying that is our alternative, is to do something new, uh, Sanders suffered from something else, and that was outright a lot of propaganda against him to make sure that black people did not support him. So for example, a couple of years ago, there was this weird story about him. He was uh, giving a speech in Jackson, Mississippi, and we were told that he was disrespectful to Barack Obama because he referred to him as a candidate and not as president. So it was very odd to me. So I go to YouTube, I find the speech, it's like 20 minutes long and I watch it. And he when referring to the 2008 election, it was nothing inappropriate about him referring to Obama as a candidate, because that's what he was in 2008. And he did call refer to him as president. But it was this sort of thing that got an awful lot of attention. And, you know, Americans like to think there's no propaganda here, but there is. And I believe the establishment Democrats, they, they're first election, they had two elections in 2020. The first one was to make sure Bernie Sanders wasn't the nominee, and the second one was the general election. So for the past couple of years, we've been getting these critiques of Sanders. And some of them were accurate, but then some of them were just lies. They just didn't stand up to, to um, any uh, evidence. And um, I and, and so um, and then I think the biggest thing was black people were told Bernie can't win so if you want Medicare for all well you may want Medicare for all, but other people don't want it and he's too left and he'll lose so you shouldn't support him so there was a lot of active propaganda to make sure that this person whose policies were actually in line with our thinking was not going to um, to get our uh, support. But I, I. But it's obvious that that the, there are a couple of things that we've learned from the Sanders two efforts, and that is that a progressive cannot run as a Democrat. Cannot. And so the thing we're most um, discouraged from having a third uh, party candidate is the thing that we have to do if we want to see any of those things. I also want to say, you know, and in my book, I write about um, Uh, the racism inherent in American politics. And there are people who got huge uh, support from the Black community who were outwardly racist uh, in the 70s, Jimmy Carter. And we wanted uh, to see a Democratic president after there was a couple of uh, Republican victories. He said very racist things about school busing was the issue at the time. And you can't have alien influence in the neighborhood. Bill Clinton, he left the campaign trail, went back to Arkansas and and executed a mentally ill Black man who had this horrible photo op with these Black men in prison garbs lined up to make his case about uh, being tough on crime. So these people did overtly, outwardly, deliberately racist in order to appeal to white people statements and actions, but Bernie Sanders was uh, vilified and picked apart over the slightest thing. So I think the, what, what we need to do is get rid of the Democrats. We've got to get rid of them. So we're not in this party that does the absolute minimum that the best thing they can say is that they're not overt racist, but when they leave office, you don't have anything else. You're not any better off. So that is my plea to, uh, yes, get rid of the Democrats, but go to the left, not to the right.
1: And, and I, I mean, I, I wanted to say something about that, but and now and something, but I know, I know James does too, but just briefly, I mean, this is where your, your book ends. Your book ends with Donald Trump as the, yes. the last chapter. And and you say this um, really, really interesting thing about Donald Trump, but you know, obviously, uh, you, you, know, you say that what Donald Trump proves is that the presidential racism existed for so long and it exists because it's so so effective right so you know you basically said exactly i mean similar to what you said now but like you know the 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 point here about what to learn from donald trump that you've made um as i understand it is that what we need to learn is that actually it's not just Donald Trump that's uh, that's the the racist here, but there's a there's this huge establishment history of racism within the whole history of presidents that you've been through, and 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 yeah, I mean, and then to go to Biden just does seem like such a return to exactly that history that we should have moved away from by going to the left, and and so that was that was my my question really. I mean, do you do you feel that like you know Trump is almost a missed opportunity in a way? Like, was it, although your book ends on this kind of yeah, I mean to me that the way it finishes it's like there's a kind of hopefulness here like are we suddenly going to realize that this is how shit things have always been and go to the left finally and then now it looks like we're not going to do that and and no. it's uh, you know.
4: <laughs> and I have to by the way I have to draft a new chapter so <laughs> the next printing we'll have we have to have a Biden uh, chapter because of the election but Biden himself had a history of being racist um uh, he was always in the conservative wing of the Democratic Party and saying inappropriate. He told this weird story. I don't know if you know of the Corn Pop story of him oh, yeah. being a lifeguard as a young man, and there was a black guy called Corn Pop who apparently really existed. The story We're was
0: hoping the- to interview Corn Pop. We're, we're he's, really, he's dead.
4: Uh, um, he did exist. There was a guy <laughs> named Corn Pop about how he had this fight with him, and he pulled a knife, and I told him my was going to – it was like it was the oddest thing. Um, And uh, uh, he, when he was the point person in the Democrats against school busing, he said things like, I don't want my kids growing up in a racial jungle, who bragged about the 1990s crime bill, which increased mass incarceration, he bragged about it. Now he said uh, something like, uh, we do everything except give you the death penalty for jaywalking or something like that. He was known always for blurting out inappropriate things. when, add this summer, after the protests, after George Floyd was killed, he talked about we poli- need to stop police killings and need to teach police to shoot people in the legs. I mean, it was so bizarre. <laughs> so we're back. We are back there again, quite literally. Um, but uh, uh, my optimism has to be, speaking of this summer and though that wave of protests, uh, it just goes to show you there are millions of people who do want change. They want political change. Um, they 're not going to get it through the presidential electoral system, but it 's there, and that is to me a cause uh, for optimism and These protests were i 'd never in my life seen such multiracial protests there were places like Portland oregon, where there aren 't any black people. There were still huge protests, and this happened um, across the country, and that's that energy needs to be uh, directed towards um, fundamental change. And it can't go into a presidential. It's unfortunate that it actually coincided with the presidential campaign, because I think that sucked a- away a lot of that energy.
0: Hmm. Um, I, I, was, I wanted to get you on to um, or interrogate a bit more of the, this question of um, third party candidates and your, your how you see your membership of the Green Party. But as we're on the topic of the protests, let, let, let's get to this. We. we need to sort of see our our politics as as bottom Mm -hmm. up i totally agree with that um under obama um black lives matters representatives were invited to the white house and and kind of notoriously treated in a a, a quite patronizing way Mm -hmm. and um were you know kind of told by obama to kind of count themselves lucky for this gesture that they've been Mm -hmm. invited to the white house and and this has sometimes been contrasted with um, how Obama associated himself with gay marriage and lit up the mm-hmm. the White House in in the rainbow flag, so on the one hand, this undoubtedly important but ultimately like free and uh, uh, ultimately uncontroversial measure of gay marriage. Obama can identify himself with that, but the more complex like demands of uh, uh concerning policing concerning uh the way in which so much of the black uh, population is condemned to this kind of virtual uh, underclass conditions with no uh, uh w- with no route out um th- that was given shorter shrift the contrast between that sort of first wave of, of black lives matter and how the uh, establishments, Democrats, corporations responded to it. The contrast between that and 2020, I think, is pretty striking. That this time, uh, you know, K- Kimberly Crenshaw went as far as to say that um, Netflix and and other kind of big companies had uh, you know proven themselves greater anti-racist allies than Bernie Sanders had. Um, this kind of idea that. You know, Mastercard is your ally. <laughs> this idea yeah, yeah. that <laughs> companies were embracing these protests—it was—it was, it was c- kind of bizarre and unnerving to see. I got to yeah. say, from this side of the Atlantic, I, I wondered how you saw the change, like w- why why that change of attitude, and what you think the kind of consequences or or or, or pitfalls are for um, for for a movement that seems to have kind of approval from um certain parts of capitalism
4: well uh you know obama uh you, someone made reference earlier to his uh, speech when he said there's no white america there's no black america that was his message to white people i'm not going to be the black people's candidate uh and and you know that was uh his first uh when uh, he was speaking at the t- 2004 democratic convention and that was his the first time he uh, was exposed to the larger American public. And it was striking to me, because I, I said, well, that's just not true. Um, but he was he was sending signals to white voters, to rich funders, to all these people, do not worry, I'm not going to be the Black people's candidate. And you saw that when the Black Lives Matter uh, movement uh, arose during his administration. It was very clear as a president, the president, the federal government has the ability to prosecute cops. You can have civil rights cases. It's been done before like two or three times, but it can be done. And rather than just say, I'm going to use my Justice Department, to I believe is a very simple solution. I believe every police fatality needs to be a federal case and not a local case. Just take it out of the hands of these local prosecutors. Um, so something simple like that he refused to do. He did not want to be connected with this mass of people who adored him so much. And uh, so that's why um, uh, that's what we got to, or rather got so little. So um, fast forward to this year and uh, the um, uh, the protests that came about this year, um, we, I, I believe, The protesters, because there wasn't good enough organizing, the spontaneity ultimately was not going to win the day. So you could have corporations like the CEO of Chase Bank taking a knee. Everybody was taking a knee. You know, a few years ago was Colin Kaepernick, the football player, taking a knee in protest against police brutality. And everybody was taking a knee. Uh, that horrible, your horrible prime minister Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, the guy who'd been in blackface, now he's taking a knee. Cops were taking a knee. CEOs were taking a knee. Uh, then there was money spread around. Basically, they co-opt movements. They want to keep movements from really accomplishing what they should accomplish. So they will change the language. They will give money. Uh, A lot of it is, um, the hot word is performative. And I I think it's a good word because you have Nancy Pelosi and members of Congress taking a knee while wearing African kente cloth taken. I mean, it was horrible. Um, And uh, big corporations, they give money to people who are already well positioned in society. To uh, to take the pressure off and to keep these movements from really gaining uh, ground. So that's that I I think is what we saw this year. How do we
2: balance the need for funding on the left and the um, you know the desire to not be corporatized? Uh, there's a there's a famous there's a famous picture of a of a, a now famous uh, New York times writer uh, with the 1619 project who said there's sponsored by sun oil right up top. I think we know exactly what we're talking about. Right. And, and, it, and it really said something, right. You see, you're, you're, you're seeing, you know, like colonial projects become woke projects in ways that I, I, I had not anticipated. And I have to say, that's like, that gives credence to a movement and people are scared enough that they think that they have to co-op that movement. So how do we, fund things, and this is maybe a question that I'm sure that you've been thinking about your whole life, but mm-hmm. how do we fund these projects that need to be funded while still remaining who we are?
4: Well, we have to raise our own funds, and I, I think we have to show a little creativity. You know, these big, uh these NGOs, the foundations, all these people with money to give, they give it because They wanna make sure you don't accomplish the things that people really need. So it's a two-edged sword. But I think we have to look at what people have accomplished who didn't have any money. I mean, the Occupy movement was huge. It's a while ago now, it's almost 10 years ago. Um, Ended by Obama, by the way, when they just, uh, uh, you know, busted heads and closed up those encampments. but I, I think we have to find ways to get things done. We have to look at mutual aid. We have to look at cooperatives. We have to change, and I don't have an answer for it, but getting money from, these, from rich people and foundations is not it. Uh, it helps, obviously helps the person who gets it, but um, we can't accomplish the things that really have to be accomplished. if we, you can't bite, Nobody's going to bite the hand that feeds them and they don't give so that you can be revolutionary which is what we need revolutionary politics so just forget asking for money it's it's not i mean it works for them it silences people it disappears movements it takes all the energy it's like like um presidential elections money and and um uh politics really um, takes the energy out of uh, organizing we have to be organized and we have to think of ways to further our causes without asking for money we just have to you you can't go down that road
0: you know just to sort of piggyback on that it's a related question really um
1: i I thought you said james i thought you said piggy bank on that which would have been quite funny
0: well, put it in the piggy bank. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, well, yeah, I, I I was, can I play kind of devil's advocate of, about um, about the need for third party candidates? Um, like there would be one argument that would run uh, like this. I, I, I say this because we're going through the same dilemma in the UK, like having kind of uh, the left having lost the leadership of the Labour Party. We're currently, you know, having the ground salted <laughs> on us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's the, the dilemma now. What You know, what, what do we do? Do we stay inside the existing kind of uh, something more grassroots, something third party uh, and so on? Um, but, I, I mean, a counter-argument w- as far as the, the sort of lesson of Bernie Sanders would be that... Um, Actually, at the start of this year, he was still the front runner, mm-hmm. and still had uh, every reason to expect to succeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, there was foul play by the Democrats, uh, as one would expect. You know, this was a threat not just to their ownership of the party, but to their literal class interests. So, of, of course, they were going to treat Bernie with a great deal of hostility, um, but th- there were also mistakes made by, by him and by his campaign, which um, don't necessarily kind of disqualify the idea that uh, a candidate with his politics could be the candidate on the Democratic ticket. Um, I mean, just in the, the account you were, you were giving of um, many uh, uh, Democrats, uh, primary voters and black voters in particular, feeling frightened to take the risk on Bernie, given the stakes, given the importance of getting rid of the racist president, uh, Donald Trump, Um, I got to say, I sort of watched with dismay as Bernie seemed to kind of endorse the framing of Donald Trump as like a totally unique evil, to endorse the idea of Russiagate, which totally predictably was then used against him Everything that we see used against uh, the radical right can be used against the the uh, the, the, the radical left just as easily. Um, so there would be an argument that actually there would there was a way that just as in Britain Jeremy Corbyn could have taken ownership of the issue of Brexit uh, in, in 2017 when he still had uh, uh, the currency to do so. Um, but instead, both Bernie and Corbyn got sort of you know sucked into their own party cultures. Corbyn endorsed the idea that actually you could go back on Brexit. Bernie endorsed the idea that Trump was a unique evil and you couldn't take any risks in in getting rid of him. And the result was that the right was able to take those parties back. So I guess my my argument would be like, isn't there also a kind of version where we learn that lesson, retain a kind of of insurgent populist antagonism to these parties, continue to work within them. What, what's, what made you say, no, the Democrats, is a, that's a dead project as far as my politics is concerned. What, what's made you feel that the, the, the Green Party and third party candidacy is the, is, is the way?
4: Well, I mean, look at what we've gotten. Um, you know, we, we have these retreads in foreign policy. So the, the guy that uh, Biden has chosen to be a secretary of state comes from comes from the Obama administration. He was in favor of invading Iraq. He was everything horrible. He was in in favor of. Um, if you look at um, uh, if you look at other uh, positions, so there's no one who says. So, for example, Trump um, famously left the um, climate accord agreement, which doesn't really do much. Actually, <laughs> uh, it you know it makes recommendations, and countries get to set their own goals, and it lets the temperature go up. So we don't have anyone who says, who talks about the Green New Deal that the Green Party started, something real that could provide new jobs that would help um, to, to stop the damage to the planet. We get the same thing. We, um, the thing that's better, you get people who, um, how shall I describe them, they uh, advocate for basic notions of civil and human rights most of the time. And with Republicans, you don't get that. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, if you have, uh, Obama became president after the 2008 crash. Did we get help for the public? Now there was a stimulus plan and governments got money and that helped somewhat, but people lost their homes. The Democrats didn't do anything about that. Um, the Obamacare, which you know became this, uh, and it's, it's this horrible thing about this country where anything conservatives hate, we're supposed to grasp onto and defend. Um, so Obamacare was this plan where you could buy insurance and pay too much for it, but if you got some catastrophic illness, you were still on your own, you could still go broke. So, and that was the thing they always said, if you talked about Obama, what about Obamacare? And I'm like, the, the go broke health insurance plan, really? That's, that's pretty much all you get. We don't get a end, an end to austerity. We don't get a return to what we had in my lifetime a government that intercedes on the behalf of people. And we've had, uh, so Republicans start with, you know, no big government, government's bad, we have to cut the budget. And Democrats go along with it because they're both capitalist parties. And uh, so uh, this business of just being happy because, yeah, I'll be happier with Biden's Supreme Court picks than I would be with Trump's, yeah, that's true. But the idea that we have to give up Everything that that's our only option that we have to give up everything else. And as far as Bernie Sanders and Corbyn, I think the lesson we can take from them is that you cannot stay within these parties and bring about any change. Now, it could be said that Corbyn should have, you know, could have made a left wing case for Brexit. You know, I don't know if that would have helped him win or not. Um, But uh, um, you ultimately they cannot stay within these parties. So you had this constant propaganda against Bernie Sanders. Um, And I I actually think had he managed to get the nomination, they were not going to let that happen. But if he had, I think he would have been treated like McGovern in the early seventies and they would have let him lose uh, rather than... It's um, the great
0: counterfactual, isn't it? Yeah, it (laughs) is. Who who would have gone Trump?
4: Yeah. So, um, uh, I, but I think, people, we have to start thinking about politics in a new way. So it's not this zero-sum game where we glom on to these awful people because there's somebody, yeah. you know, slightly more awful. Um, and uh, it cannot be within the system we have now. we It cannot. Uh, and I also think that we have to go, we have to look at, the, as I was saying before, the changes that have already taken place. It's the people who drag the politicians with them. And the, rather than now we've turned it around and we expect the politicians to be the one to, ones to save us, when historically we've been the ones who saved ourselves.
0: Um, Margaret Kimberly, it's been an absolute uh, pleasure and privilege to, to hear from you. Um, everybody needs to get this book, Prejudential uh, Black America and the Presidents. It's an outstanding alternative history of, of American you. politics and I can't recommend it enough. Um, thanks so much for joining us and and for sharing your your like absolutely vital work.
4: Thank you. It's been a blast. Thanks so much. <coughs> it's Bye-bye. been
1: so, thanks, Margaret. It's been so nice, and uh, thanks for coming. The book is fantastic.
4: Thank you. I'll hold it up one more time. Just hold a- it close. up. We got a nice screenshot <laughs> of the. <laughs> well. uh, thank you.
1: Bye bye. I love the fact that um, so many long his- so so many long history takes of Amer- American presence and American history is is just always so sort of white American nationalist. Whereas this is probably the only uh, long reflection on the long history of American electoral politics, which is not you know, and that is just is just. Fantastic book! I, I just love it so refreshing. much. I Love the form and I, yeah, no, it's brilliant. So we you. are eulogising. We continue to eulogise <laughs> You Thank
0: can, you. You can still travel. go,
1: Margaret. We eulogise you. after Thank your. God. 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 <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. Good night. Good night. Good night.
2: Thank Good night. you. Night. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>
1: Well, that was good. That was good. It was fantastic to hear from Margaret. I thought she was, uh, um, well, I mean, and to be honest, what we were just saying, though it did sound like a kind of closing gambit, it is actually right. I mean, what I love about the book is that it's like, it's written in these kind of really digestible fragments. It's like one president at a time, which is basically the format of like some kind of idiot nationalist historian, right, who yeah. who writes these books, like, you know, somebody who's basically a shit writer, like a oh, uh, 50 to 60-year-old white man in the yeah. UK or US who produces a book which is like prisoner time, giving this kind of absolute bollocks narrative, you know, and, and she's tried to kind of you know play with that kind of style of history and, and mess it about with it and, in a really interesting way, I think.
2: Yeah, you really want to get this in, in some teenagers' hands. I think that's the that's the thing. Like whenever I read a political book, and, and I I think that's that's the key. It's it's all not good for us to read these books now and that's it's helpful it's nice it's edifying in many ways because we're we're arriving at ideas that we've already been at and you know and i think you know margaret really does a great job of conceptualizing that and, and, and making it nice but you think about it if you got this in a 14 year old's hands how radicalized would they be they would say they would both understand the history in a, in a real context but also think oh all this stuff that i'm um, learning is bullshit and i think that's that's the most important thing you can do um and i i think that's why things you know like all these books that read in high school that are are sort of subversive are so important and i think this is one of those that you want to just kind of like send your your niece or nephew or yeah. you know <laughs> and, the right, and the right we're
0: ahead of the game the right were ahead of the left in realizing that uh actually the the political audience is not 25 to 45 year olds, Uh, it's 14 year olds. And um, yeah, no, I think that's that's a good point. Well, from like a very kind of innovative use of a traditional historical form in Margaret Kimberley's Prejudential, we're going to look at a different kind of instance of historical uh, narrative in um, this Netflix series. The Crown, which uh, I think everyone 's watching um, Izzy, uh, you you watched the first episode didn 't you right david i David and I have sat there like through the box sets and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and watched the whole thing but you like you just you just saw the first episode. do you want to like kick us off in telling uh, uh, listeners who haven 't seen it or or, or whatever what it 's all about oh, I
3: well I mean the the, the main thing I was worried about before watching it, like many others in the Gayla Swift community, i.e., Suffolk's dance, um, was that uh, I would I would end up fancying Margaret Thatcher. But um, but it's actually fine. Like um uh, you don't. There's no there's no risk of fancying Thatcher. You just need to hate her more. So.
0: so to be clear, this is uh, this is a a fictionalized account of the royal family in the 1980s. Um, this is the fourth season it started off in the 40s uh through the 50s 60s and now it takes us up in the 80s and um julian anderson uh, plays plays margaret thatcher
3: mm-hmm. indeed um and i think yeah i mean some this is an interesting uh, interesting voice in in the show um which has been talked about quite quite a lot um uh yeah rather 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 interesting to watch um so david you've got some thoughts on uh, her accent i believe
2: so, the question is um is jillian anderson english like because she certainly in interviews i, I heard on uh, q on cbc radio recently um her talk with a very distinctly english accent my impression growing up as an x-files fan was that she was american and now
0: my impression too from, uh, <laughs> you know, there's a little age gap with us. And for me, she's Star Trek Voyager.
2: Yeah, exactly. She was exactly. born in England and brought up yeah. in England and moved to yeah. America as that's, an adolescent. Yeah, see, that's perfect, Bill. Now, my question is, is that, and as I'm raising uh, children who are, are going to have two citizenships and which accent will they have? You know, will they have a terrible mid-Atlantic accent like their father or will they have a lovely accent like their mother? And that's, that's what I want to know. And I, and this Gillian Anderson, um, portrayal is really beautiful in that way, because you can see her finally sort of arrive at her final form in this sort of uh, Pokemon uh, way where she can say like, I am truly a, 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 an English girl boss. And is there a, a bigger English girl boss than Margaret Thatcher? Um, I found myself uh, both (laughs) finding some sympathy in her, which I never thought because I think austerity is genocide. But I think that the interesting thing about it was to watch her uh, sort of uh, like enliven the space, which is Margaret Thatcher, and also like bring it to light and bring it to the front. I think that at this point, even in in England, I think that people in, in the UK, people may understand Thatcher, but not understand how Thatcher affects their life. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about the, the whole uh, uh, crown was it, it talked about austerity, but it, austerity was not the story. Um, hmm. You could see that a little bit in previous seasons where they would, you would see where um, the, the lack of mining standards was a big story. Um, those types of things, but you didn't sort of see the, the real role that austerity had taken into the, into the, 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 Uh, role of the English people um, and it it was kind of showed how the how the um, the royalty had distracted from that sort of austerity mindset because of Diana Mm. and I just was wondering as as people who are actually uh, living in the UK what did you think about that sort of storyline and how that that played out well
1: I guess my first comment is about this this idea of Gillian Anderson as as Thatcher you know and I mean I, I I guess I wasn't so preoccupied as whether she's English or American, or as I was, with whether she's attractive or not, and uh, I, I, my fear and the fear of others was that um, Gillian Anderson playing um, Maggie Maggie would um, would make Margaret Thatcher a little bit attractive, and uh, I thought that was weirdly um, the opposite. I mean, I, I thought that like. I was worried I was worried that like, um, yeah, Gillian Anderson would suddenly enamor people to the concept of that. But actually it was the opposite. I mean, suddenly Gillian Anderson was unattractive. So I guess to me that was a sort of lesson in uh, the relationship between politics and desire, or something. You know, like you know, uh, you know. Obviously, you fancied Jenny Anderson in almost every other role, but then uh, this, there's this one role where one can't feel that way. It, it, it left me feeling like somehow pure leftist or something. Like I couldn't actually. I felt like vindicated myself that even my desires weren't betraying me. You know.
3: Exactly. I mean. <laughs> It, the the anxiety was unnecessary all along because, as discussed, just need to hate that tree enough and you're fine.
0: So on the one hand, um, David's writes that there is a kind of there it's a depoliticizing representation of the 1980s, um, inevitably so, and that that maybe like isn't even particular to the choices made in the program. In some ways, all historical fiction is depoliticizing, like from Walter Scott onwards, from Shakespeare's history plays onwards. They take structural political events but show them to us through the feelings, the soap opera-like dilemmas of individual people. So there's something structurally depoliticizing about this kind of fiction. Um, And how does that play out? Well, you know, the the fact that uh, Thatcher was imposing neoliberalism, imposing austerity upon the country, de-industrializing uh, uh, the country and, and causing you know, extraordinary uh, damage to the lives of, of, of the working class. Um, that does sort of peek into the show, But it does. um, It it only really is addressed in the episode about this uh, crazy guy who uh, invades um, Buckingham Palace and and is caught in the Queen's bedroom talking to him. It's a very interesting episode. But the only way that we get a glimpse um, in the Crown of what was going on in the country economically is tellingly through the lens of this this mentally ill guy. So it's like the program endorses. You know, it's a very sentimental. Episode, we we feel for um, th- this guy and how he's lost his family, lost his job, lost his opportunity because of that uh, project. We believe him when he blames Thatcher, but like the program also steps back from endorsing that frame because it's only through this one strange, unique individual that we see it. Very similar in how the um, how the program treats the IRA. It wants to make it. Like center stage in the story, but then immediately withdraws from it once it's got a particular kind of sentimental account. But that's not to say that the program isn't interested in class. It certainly um, does like suppress the content of uh, a conflict between working class and bourgeoisie, to put it in those terms. But more importantly, the program is about um, class struggle within. The elite. Um, the the the, uh, the the first couple of episodes create this very interesting parallel between Margaret Thatcher and Princess Diana, as this kind of um, lower class. In um, Thatcher's case, she's a, a petty daughter of a petty bourgeois grocer. In Diana's case, she is an aristocrat, but is you know she works as a cleaner, works as a teacher, even though she doesn't need to. Um, she's got this kind of common touch you, you see this kind of the, the crown sets up this narrative that thatcher and diana are a sort of injection of fresh vitality and 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 blood from a slightly kind of lower order into the elite into the royal family and thatcher is expo- is expelled i think the, the episode where we most kind of are invited to feel sympathy for her and I don't mind saying that uh, I did is when she goes to whatever the, the retreat with the Royals in Scotland and is utterly appalled at their um, aristocratic affectation and leaves Diana then arrives at the same party and, and uh, wins everyone over.
2: So I actually wanted to get to that point to a certain extent. I, and I think that one of the things that I think people don't understand is that these sort of aristocratic uh, sort of traditions actually like really do ripple through throughout all the places that w- in which there was colonies. Uh, if you go mm-hmm. to any sort of elite school in the United States, and this, you had the Ibble Dibble scene. There was a scene where they were putting blotters on their head, and they were drinking, and you had to say, like, this Ibble Dibble, this is a person uh, across the way, has this, uh, you're receiving uh, uh, sort of the, the torch where you were actually, like, calling on them to say something about them, and the no. amount of marks they had on their face it's it's actually a really That's like aggressive drinking game right mm-hmm. and and you realize that that actually is that how things like you know from brett Kavanaugh to you know george bush uh you know senior and junior mm-hmm. this is how things are actually like like people are or their metal is tested in an era where there aren't there aren't knights there aren't melees they're not you know there isn't jousting anymore but you have drinking games right and you, you realize that that In an era of austerity, you would see that, you know, where there would be challenging, you know, people who are on the dole, uh, you know, for being, you know, for having drinking or having like bad habits. You you could see these people indulging in this excess. And then you saw Margaret Thatcher, who would also be very judgmental of those people if they were actually poor, being Mm -hmm. judgmental of the people when they're rich i thought that was very interesting um, and um, there was some humani- humanizing aspects of the margaret thatcher role when for example when they they went to the the castle in the north they actually uh, they tried to get them to sleep her and her husband to sleep in different bedrooms yeah that was a great uh, one. yeah that yeah, was yeah. great right and and, and you can and say that, okay that all right this is a is real sleeping,
0: human taking advantage of the other bed and sleeping in yeah. it. we yeah. we don't we don't want to uh, 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 take on aristocratic habits
2: Yes, yes, and that that was interesting. I thought that was interesting. But but the the question was, what's worse is uh, uh uh you know creating a new aristocracy, or uh taking on aristocratic habits, and that 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 sort of tension between the Diana character and the uh, Thatcher character was really interesting. Yeah, I think, and, I think and of um, course it's an obfuscation
0: because uh, uh you know Di- Diana was was used to um uh rebrand the royals in the 80s just as her death was used to was used by Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell um to to uh, um, yeah well to to bind them to the this populist gesture of the people's princess it is, It's also very interesting to read up on how Alastair Campbell kind of offered new labor services to the royals after Diana died saying we will get you out of this our kind of arts of um of advertising and presentation will get you out of this but you're on our side from there on in
1: I think um yeah um uh I think think about this this question of Diana is interesting um one of the things that struck me is the representation of Charles in the show um and how um He's presented as almost this kind of slightly uh, edgy member of the royal family, and maybe it's just because they got a good young actor to do that with the with the right ears. But he's he's um, he's 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 almost like the the relationship with um, uh, Camilla Parker Bowles, C, CPB, uh, is is kind of idolized a little and the, 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 the then there's this large, large pressure on him in the first couple of episodes like oh you've got to marry the right person and then it's like somebody misadvised the royal family saying he should play around or whatever and then ends up kind of um, making him out to be this kind of like edgy character in the royal family almost the subversive one which i think is maybe true of the royal family not that i give a flying fuck who's the most subversive person in the royal family because then none of them are subversive people and it's completely ridiculous to even think about one standing out from the crowd in that case but then like to think about that like the way it presents that relationship with diana i suspect prince andrew
0: is the most subversive (laughs) Pedophilia is generally regarded. <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> Alleg-
1: Andrew's allegedly the most subversive, But, you know, yeah, but he's, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a fair point to us. But I, I think it, in some way it plays that narrative, um, with Diana narrative that you were just talking about quite badly because it, it says that, um, you know, he was okay to, you know, Diana was a forced marriage in some way. He was really in love with uh, Camilla Parker Bowles. And so it's like a certain kind of adultery is legitimized by the show. Prince Charles's adultery with Camilla Parker Bowles, whereas and so and but then of course that's the official narrative of the royal family now that you know that of course they're now married. So the show presents it as a young Charles making subversive decisions to be in love with Camilla Parker Bowles, but uh, retrospectively looking back, you know clearly that's uh, that's the exact narrative that the royal family want to sell, which is kind of odd in the in the context that the royal family complained about the show. Whereas actually, does I, I, I think that goes back to
2: our, our peterson discussion i think that some of the the complaints may actually be the the, the like look at this point yeah. you know it's a way it's a way to point out what they're doing right well
3: just back to uh, charles as um, some edgy, edgy character i mean the filmography for um was just on the nose in that respect, at least for, for, the, for the one entire episode I watched. It you know, had, like, close-ups of Prince Charles's crotch as he's, like, fiddling with some fishing tackle. And it's like, we get it, he fucked. Uh, but it's, um, <laughs>
0: yeah,
3: quite it's just a, a curious um, interpretation.
0: <laughs> the the show has, like, had its intriguing moments politically. I mean, of course, it's uh, it, it, it's ultimately reactionary. How, how could it be otherwise? Um, but in the, first, in the previous series uh, set in the 1960s, there's a kind of weird like pro-Corbyn moment, actually, where um, Harold Wilson is elected uh, prime minister and there's all this rumour that he, uh, the Labour leader, um, is a Soviet spy and the Queen kind of buys into it naively, um, only to discover at the end of the episode that the, um, uh, the, the, the royal butler is the spy. And harold wilson is has nothing to do with the soviets at all so th- there's a kind of drama created out of the idea that uh, an ostensibly you know irresponsible or dangerous left-wing leader is automatically um, you know in hock with a, a foreign power when actually that's far more characteristic of the behavior of uh, the establishment of, of 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 the official um center and I mean, that that makes me wonder about about this series, um, really. I I find it a kind of quite charming coincidence that this series of The Crown has appeared at the same time that the great uh, English Marxist Perry Anderson has deigned to return to the the canonical Neon Anderson thesis of the 1960s um, about the nature of the British state. Uh, He's uh, got a long article in the latest issue of the New Left Review kind of giving this uh, to use the, the the word that's always used about it, magisterial accounts of the history of the British state. Um, now, the, the Nen Anderson thesis was basically making a kind of Marxist account of the fact that Britain was structurally in a state of continual decline and had been so since the 17th century. And this was baked in because, um, well, to put it briefly, <laughs> our revolution happened too early, 100 years before America or France uh, and other parts of Europe. And so the bourgeoisie never was adequately antagonistic to the monarchy or the aristocracy. So there's never been that antagonism driving things, so there's always been this kind of structural slowdown going on all the time. Now, the Queen advises Thatcher uh, when, in the final episode, I think, where where Thatcher is contemplating resignation, Thatcher is saying, no, I haven't finished. The revolution isn't over. I haven't um, uh, uh, finished my project of... Uh, undoing Britain's decline and instituting full neoliberalism. And the Queen is very kind of um, uh, 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 casual about this and says, oh, well, all through my reign, Britain has been in a state of continual economic crisis uh, and decline. You learn to live with that, and ultimately you realize that you can't do anything about it. So strangely, we find a, a kind of canonical Marxist argument about Britain Perry Anderson, and Perry's basically said in the New Left Review, he regrets nothing, he doesn't care about any of the counter arguments that have happened over the last 60 years, uh, and he stands by it. That actually we find that same argument made in very different ways by Thatcher and the Queen uh, in, in the Crown. So we're getting kind of a Marxist analysis of the British state articulated in a program which completely excludes any working class politics or any possibility of Marxist uh, 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 point of view so there's why the crown and uh, perry anderson are, um are uh, are mutually explanatory
1: that's one hell of a statement about the crown and perry anderson i love it i love it i i i just want to say is
2: that folks you're going to get that only here and this is yeah. this is the podcast where you are actually going to hear this type of analysis and that sort of depth i i have to say that like we really really have gotten to the the depths of the crown I'd like to get into it more in the future. Um, I think that the, the sort of realm of pop culture and politics and, and sort of left critique is, you know, the strength that we have here as, as a team. And I, I, I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, I think we should let everyone go to bed. Thanks everyone for coming this evening. And this has been the trial run of the popular show. I'm sure we will uh, get more. Popular and less trily, as we go on. James, can yeah. you give us a little snippet of what's happening next week? Wednesday next week on the popular show.
0: We're going to be talking about lockdowns. We're going to be talking about how the left relates to the politics and the economics of lockdown. And our interview is going to be with um, Christopher Hitchens's fucked-up right-wing brother, Peter Hitchens. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs>
2: if I you think... can't
1: get christopher you 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 know you know what to do. well he's a he's a harder <laughs> yeah that's what time. i meant yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i know he's dead
2: <laughs> he's never dead always alive and i and i think that that's you know i think that fighting spirit comes through in this this show so i'm excited <laughs> to, to hear what's going on
1: <laughs> good night everyone uh see you next week yeah, on yeah, the no. popular show there were no
2: black cops you couldn't even run drive round the block Recently police trained Black Cop to stand on the corner and take one shot. This is a war-